Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Cuts Vine for April 14th, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, and thanks to y'all both for covering for me that last two-thirds of the show and uh, Jeff Singer for coming on and and I'm sure y'all did a fantastic job maybe even better than if I'd have been there and wanted to thank y'all right off uh, and tonight we got a great guest uh, author of many many books um, including the book we're going to discuss tonight uh, the football for a buck the crazy rise of the USFL and the even crazier demise Mr. Jeff Perlman, he's going to come on, and he's going to talk to us about his book, The United States Football League, and one of its owners. And that, that's going to be where the political uh, comes in. So if you're like, what in the world is this turning into a sports show? No, it is not. There is a political angle because everything gets political in these days of the Trump administration. But before that, uh, we are going to talk about some political issues. And the first one is kind of one of the more of those global trend issues it's not necessarily one thing that happened this week and it's kind of um what we're seeing in some primary polling from the democratic party and what we're seeing on social media and we're seeing among activists it's looking like there's a bit of a disconnect and the new york times uh picked up on this did a big story i think msnbc did a piece on that and bill maher talked about it how it looks like the you know the democratic activist base that's on social media is further to the left than the whole of the democratic party electorate uh tim i think you actually watched the msnbc piece whereas i know i didn't and i'm not sure about Catherine. uh tell us more about what the new york times story said well basically the there is a disconnect between the, the internet and the real world, duh, right? Uh, and, and they gave a lot of facts and figures to show how different the people are on social media as, as opposed to the electorate as a whole. For instance, just a couple of things. 71% of the Democrats on social media are white. Well, see, 55% of actual Democrats out there are. Uh, Another thing we see a lot on social media, whole lot of progressive support for Bernie Sanders. And that's fine. I know he has a good hardcore of support out there, and he could win the nomination. But only about 10% of the actual Democrats are, are are democratic socialists like like uh, like, like like Bernie. See, social media uh, can drive a narrative 
but it's not reality. That's the whole point of this New York Times uh, article. And and if if you haven't read it out there, folks, you need to look that one up and read it because, like I said, there's a lot of facts and figures, a lot of comparisons on there, and it's really some good stuff. And 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 it really just you know says what most of us already knew that the internet like television is not reality it's perceptions of reality right Catherine? yeah this is no big surprise to me um that the polls uh that so what what happens on social media is different than what we see in the you know air quote real world um and then you know you also have to take into account name ID and there's so many things that are playing into the popularity of candidates right now that it's just changing. I mean, I think it'll it'll be interesting to see if uh former vice president Joe Biden does get into the race and what happens then. But until until we feel like those uh gates are closed and no one else is going to enter, it's really hard to tell what all this means. At least that's what I I feel. Like any one of these uh, current candidates could make a big gaffe and just be out, or their fundraising could just peter out completely and then they're out, or it could rise and then they you know have a more stable place in the in the race. So I just think it's really hard to get a good handle on it, and this is just another example of that. Well, yeah, Catherine, you brought up Joe Biden, and that's one thing that's kind of, uh, you know, you can kind of put together is you very, you see very little, um, you know, big groundswell support for Joe Biden on social media and, and through a lot of the more progressive blogosphere. Yet he leads every poll. Um, is this an indication of this, or is this strictly just the fact that he was the former VP and has the best name ID? And also he's um, – I mean, it's not just that he has name ID. People know him. You know, they've seen him on TV. They've seen him speak. speak. They've seen him, you know, interact with um, President Obama. So, And even some, you know, uh, back and forth with uh, President Trump. So he's not as much of an unknown – entity as some of these other candidates so i think it's name id and just the fact that we know him david we had him for eight years yes Tim. Yeah. let's listen to this stat according to pew research fully one half of democrats who describe themselves as either moderate or conservative do not even engage on social media wouldn't you think that that big hunk of Democrats right there, you'd find a lot of Biden supporters among them, right? Yes. Uh, I mean, or so, somewhere. I mean, it's something, well, you know, a piece that's missing to the puzzle because, you know, what we read, we look on Twitter and different things and different blogs, and what you see there does not match up with what you see in well, the polls, and then just the, out every day when you're I, out and about. 
I would describe myself as a as a liberal. I'm a new I'm a New Deal liberal. I know there's not a lot of them around anymore, but that that's what I am. I, I'm pretty progressive on a lot of these issues, and 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 reading a, a, a lot, mainly Facebooks, where I stay and read this stuff. Although they talked about Twitter a lot, but the progressives on social media, hey, they're out there, and they're organized and they're pretty loud, and. Uh, I do believe that the most liberal wing of the party is growing, but they just do not dominate the party right here. Social media skewers younger. Younger generally means more progressive among Democrats, but older Democrats, what are they actually more likely to do? Vote, right? Who are they going to vote for? They're going to vote. For somebody like Joe Biden, I think, someone who represents, you know, the establishment wing of the party, somebody they're comfortable with, somebody who has a track record. Um, You know, you've talked about, David, about Democrats wanting to fall in love, and they have in the past, with John Kennedy, uh, with Bill Clinton, with Barack Obama especially. I'm thinking that maybe next year all of that is going to be put to the side in favor of what beat Trump. That's a perfect setup for a guy like Joe Biden. That's why he's leading in the polls right now. Yeah, I think electability is going to be a bigger issue. Not that he's the only candidate that um, is electable, but – there's going to be a, a premium paid on that, and as more candidates are known about, there'll be more head-to-head polls. And if, if one candidate's doing five and seven points worse than another candidate, people are going to start to ask major questions. Um, one thing that I saw on Bill Maher and on The Daily Show this past week was they are talking about some issues in some of these uh, interest groups when you, when you go to these different affiliations. And one was – they talked about Democratic candidates going to see Al Sharpton and talking about reparations. And would you want a study committee on that? And I had heard in past political um, consulting forms, it was like, you know, you know, toxic issues for the Republicans. They named a few things, toxic issues for the Democrats. That was named as one. Um, could it be that some policies that Democratic um, candidates take, just much like the Republicans do with the Tea Party, could there be a few things that candidates become on record with in the primary to win the nomination will hurt them in the general? Um, Catherine, do you think that could happen where uh, there are certain um, issues that are really not big to most voters but are big to certain constituencies? And I really don't even mean African-Americans here. I mean just a a small portion in, in for instance, the um, reparations issue. Tim, are you there? Yes, I am. Um, and, okay. Oh, I'm and, sorry, I had myself on mute. I'm sorry, I had myself. Oh, on okay. Mute. Well, go ahead, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, I uh, I hope that's not true because I really want our candidates to feel uh, to 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 stand up for the for the values and the policies and the issues that um, are important to them and that will energize and engage some of the 
voters that maybe haven't been as energized or engaged in the past. Um, and I think we need to stand up for the, for those values and not say one thing to win the primary and then back away from it or have it hurt us in the general. Well, well and, and Tim, I want to kind of ask you a question, piggybacking on that. Um, used to, you know, 20, 25 years ago, I kind of think that a lot of um, candidates would try to run to the middle, and particularly in the Democratic Party, they might actually be further to the left on issues than they would speak of because they, um, you know, wanted to win in the general. And the Republicans, probably the case as well, uh, maybe not so much as the Democratic Party. Now, in the past, say, 10 years, maybe even less with the Tea Party era and now kind of the Democratic uh, version of that, I kind of get the opposite. I think there's a lot of candidates that are actually more to the middle, and they're not in the middle, but they're, they're further to the middle than the base in a lot of cases, or at least the activists are. And so they actually will come out with policies that that are further left or, in the case of Republicans, further right than they are, but they want to please the primary voters. Do you get that sense? Well, primary voters are always very liberal. They are in the Democratic Party. They, they most certainly are, and they, they, of course, do tend to skew to the left of the general electorate, just like in Republican primaries, you're going to see them run to the right of Attila the Hun and then try to navigate <laughs> their way back toward the middle, except for next year. I, I, I want our candidates to talk about a lot of good policy. I want to hear about health care and, and that sort of thing. Uh but you know what? I'm really afraid this election is going to be dominated by one thing. Either you're Donald Trump or you're not. That's going to be the story, I believe, of the election. I believe it's going to be all about Donald Trump. And I ain't talking about all about an incumbent. I'm talking about Donald Trump. Do you? Are you so angry that you want to get rid of him? That's what happened last year. The Democratic voters were angry, and here they came to vote. I really believe this thing is going to be driven, uh, at least from the Democratic side, by our candidate is not Donald Trump, folks, let's return to normal. And on the Republican side, you know what they're going to do. They're going to scream socialism. That's where some of this stuff, you know, about reparations and things like that, they, they might actually bring it up more than our candidates would. But I yeah. don't believe that old dog's going to be hunting next year. I really believe that this election is going to be totally dominated by one thing. Do you want to keep Donald Trump or do you want to get rid of him? And that's going to be the long and short of it. What do you think? Yeah, I think that that is going to be an issue is how how is the Democratic nominee, will they be able to be branded – uh, by you know Trump and Trump supporters and the Republican Party, or will it be still back on Donald Trump's inco- you know incompetence? And so that's why I think that's one key thing that all how many of our umpteen candidates were up to today, um, that all of them realize that they can't be branded in any certain way. They've got to make sure that they you know let their competence 
shine through. And pretty much in the case of every single one, they have a competence advantage over Donald Trump. Catherine? Well, you know, I, um, I, I do think the election is going to be all about Donald Trump, but I think it's going to be um, difficult for uh, candidate for for our candidate to walk the line between being critical of Donald Trump and talking about Donald Trump all the time, because I don't think that's what, I mean, I think that's going to engage voters to a certain point in this election, but they're also going to want to hear about how a democratic president will roll back things that um, the Trump administration has done and uh, move forward and make progress on things like health care and um, our international reputation and climate change. So I think it's going to be really difficult to um, – I just think that's going to be a really difficult line to walk. I, I mean, I think that our candidates are all very competent, and I think they'll be able to do it. But it will be a challenge, in my opinion. Yes. Um, well, let's try to talk about one more, at least get into one more issue before our guest comes on, and that would be um, the border and uh, immigration policy in general. I guess this isn't actually just the border. But we kind of found out last week, about the time the show was coming on, um, Kristen uh, Nielsen resigned, probably a forced resignation, and more has come out about that. And one of the big reasons was Donald Trump wanted to uh, release a lot of detainees into sanctuary cities, uh, particularly California. He named California by name. I mean, he, he said, these people want them, we'll give them all of them. And it was almost like he was using these uh, immigrants it's kind of he weaponized them in a way like we're, we're going to show them and give them what they want um, by releasing them into those cities. Uh, Tim, isn't he the president of the entire United States of America, not just <laughs> the rural areas and the states that voted for him? Well, he thinks of himself as I, I'm not sure he thinks of himself as the president. I was thinking more like he's acting more like a you know, a monarch or something. Look, they they first proposed this last November in order to retaliate against uh, Trump opponents. Of course, later on, both the White House and the Department of Homeland Services uh, had denied it, it was under consideration. But what happened, what usually happens, Trump tweeted and he said, due to the fact that Democrats are unwilling to change our very dangerous immigration laws, uh, we are indeed, as reported, giving strong considerations to placing illegal immigrants in sanctuary cities only. Of course, this caught everyone, including his own White House, with their bridges down. How many times has he done stuff like this uh it, it would just <laughs> oh boy you, you know i what what do you what do you finally say i mean that's that's a of course a sop for his uh 
for his uh, supporters. They're going to eat that sort of thing up. Yeah, let's show them liberals in California, you know, that sort of thing. So here we go again with Trump uh, changing his mind 15 times, his, his own White House saying one thing, him saying another, and we're left to wonder what he means or if he means anything at all. Yeah. Um, It's kind of hard to know. Catherine, what's your thoughts? I say better uh, better those uh, cities than cages. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if that's if that's the if the, those are the choices, I'll 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 take this I'll, I'll take we'll take them here in Atlanta. I mean, it's just crazy though. It's it's like you said, David. It's using people as uh, as ammunition. They're not, demonizing not, yeah, little I mean, kids. They are. They're demonizing little kids. How dare they? How how, how dare they do that? Yeah, I mean, that is um, uh, very, very petty of them. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, Most of the uh, detainees probably came in through states along the border, like Texas and like Arizona. Two of the four, you know, border states that share the Mexican border are Republican states at this point. Now, both could trend pretty quickly. But but for the most part, um, you know, Texas shares the longest border. Arizona has quite a long border as well. Would I mean, wouldn't it make more sense that if you were going to release the folks? I mean, obviously, if you say they came illegally, you could send people back to Mexico would or whichever country they came. If they came from other countries, that would make more logical sense than just release them to other places. But if you did say we're going to release them out, wouldn't it make more sense to release them into? Um, the states that they came through, but but that would actually then penalize states that you know the Republican Party won in the twenty six uh, sixteen election. But let me switch gears right now, and I want to welcome on our guest of the program, uh, Mr. Jeff Perlman. Welcome, Jeff. Hello. How's it going? Oh, good to have you on. You're on with uh, myself and Tim Shiflett and Catherine Smith. We're all going to end up asking you questions, but I'm going to start off with you tonight. Um, we know you've written many, many books. Uh, we're going to talk about one in particular, but just kind of tell our listeners about your biography uh, and kind of how you came to, you know, be into sports writing and this book in particular. Uh, yeah, well, I am a. Uh, I used to be a baseball writer at Sports Illustrated for a bunch of years, and I've written. I was a newspaper writer at the Nashville Tennessean and Newsday, and I uh, started writing books in 2003. I've written uh, eight books. And uh, the book uh, I guess you're referring to is the USFL book, Football for a Buck. And um, I was uh, I grew up in, in New York, a very big USFL fan, like a huge USFL fan. And for years I was intrigued by the league and always wanted to write about it. Uh, could never get a book deal because nobody really remembers the USFL. So I kind of end up writing <laughs> Brett Favre's. Well, it's true. I end up, it's funny. People ask when I promote the book, people will be like, so why are people so fascinated by the USFL? And I was always like, eh, they're not really, you know, they're not like part of my job is to convince people why they should be. Um, but I grew up a diehard and for years I wanted to write it. I was always told nobody wants a USFL book. I finally, uh, I, I wrote Brett Favre's biography, uh, I don't know, four years ago. And it was a two book deal I signed. 
Uh, they wanted the Favre book. They didn't really want the U.S. of L book, but they got both. And uh, the U.S. of L book ended up being a, a New York Times bestseller, so it worked out okay. Yes. Well, uh, Jeff, I-, I listened to the entire thing and uh, really enjoyed it. And kind of early in the book, you tell about, you know, kind of how this project got started way back in the 80s. Um, you were in high school, and you wrote a term paper that I know when I was in school, you had to write like five pages. It sounded like your school was a little more rigorous and maybe you had to make you write ten. But you wrote something like 40-something pages and didn't even get an A on this sucker. Uh, tell us yeah. about that torture, that arduous process. It's kind of funny. I, uh, it's not that I went to some amazing uh, school, to be clear, I, you know, Mail Pack High School in upstate New York. But I was in uh, – I wasn't a great student, but I was a good English student, so I was in AP English. And my teacher, uh, Mr. Height, our final project was a paper that had to be uh, 20 pages in length, and it was kind of a research paper. And you could you could pick your subject with his approval. And everyone was picking, you know, whatever, the Ronald Reagan's pre- uh, presidency and uh, Abraham Lincoln's legacy and John F. Kennedy. And, and I said, I want to write about the downfall of the United States Football League. And <laughs> I remember Mr. Height, you know, what the hell are you talking? You know, like, what? And uh, But he let me do it, to his credit. And um, I ended up, it was supposed to be 20 pages. I wrote 40. I mean, I was a diehard Die Hard. And the thing I remember most, it's funny, the USFL died in 1985. Uh, its last season was 1985. This was 1990. And on the back of one of the USFL, old USFL guides, like the sporting news used to put out the annual USFL guide, was a phone number for the USFL's office. And, uh, you know, whatever, five years later. But I called, and I remember getting an answering machine. Eh, thank you for calling the USFL, blah, 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 blah. Leaving a message, and my little 18-year-old mind thinking that, like, someone's going to call me back imminently. And it was probably truly an answering machine in someone's basement, you know, that they kept for some reason, because I never heard back from anyone. But I wrote 40 pages, and I ended up getting, I think, a B or a B plus, not a very good grade. <laughs> well, I, I, I just, I'm a teacher now, and I'll tell you what, if anybody writes double what they should and it's on topic, I, I'll promise to give it an A just to uh, make it right yeah. by you, because, um, I actually don't assign papers. I teach STEM, so. Oh, <laughs> but I'm a, you know, it's funny. I, I, I always say, like, I teach, um, I, I, I'm an adjunct professor out here at a, at a small college in Southern California, and I now can empathize. Like, at the time, you, you, you think your teacher's, you know, reading every word. Imagine being poor Mr. Height. The summer's coming. It's probably the last assignment you're giving. 20 pages. And some punk-ass kid hands in 40 pages on the downfall of the United States Football League. You must be like, I'm too old for this job. I don't want to do this job anymore. I don't want to read this crap. There's no way Eric Height read 40 pages about the USFL. And I know that because I probably wouldn't be reading 40 pages of the USFL. Yes. Well, um, I know Catherine's going to ask some Donald Trump questions, and Tim may too. But I okay. wanted to ask about a different owner in context to him. Apparently, you tell stories of the original owner of the Los Angeles Express, and he sounded like he was less rational and had a worse temper and a worse temperament than some things we've seen both then and now of Donald Trump. Um, what exactly was the guy's deal? And I believe his first name was John, but don't I may not remember that fact correctly. Yeah, you're slightly off. His name was uh, Bill Oldenburg, and he was uh, okay. He was a uh, he was insane, like absolutely insane. He um, 
he bought the Express. They actually, their first year in 1983, they had two uh, different owners. And then he bought it. And he was this guy, this self-made, you know, self-anointed billionaire up in San Francisco. And um, he was just, he was all about, you know, one of his first meetings as an owner, he showed up with the other owners. And he brought Wayne Newton with him as his sidekick. And he starts, he starts, he drank a lot. And he starts getting drunk in the meeting. And he tells the other owners, he starts taking his clothes off irrationally and saying, if you want to, if you want to boogie woogie, you got to get down with the king. No one knows what that means still to this day. And he, um, you know, he gave Steve Young, who went on to a Hall of Fame career, he gave Steve Young $40 million to be the quarterback of the LA Express. Um, and then could never pay it, end up paying about $8 million. He was just insane. There were a lot of guys, they didn't do very good background checks back then. You know, if you could have done a Google search on any of these guys, half of them would never have been professional sports owners. Yes. And one more thing about a crazy story. Apparently the most, in relative terms, the most successful franchise was the Tampa Bay Bandits. Um, mm-hmm. And they would do crazy promotions. You talked about one where someone won a million dollars, but it was, I yeah, guess, yeah. in 1983. And they didn't receive even one check for like a 20-year period. And then when they started receiving it, they would get $50,000 increments. And I guess the people are maybe halfway through at this point of their million dollars, uh, assuming they were still alive. Uh, What was the deal with that whole thing? It's one of the best giveaways of all time. I'm so happy you're asking that. um, So basically the owner of the Bandits was this guy named John Bassett. He was Canadian, very sort of flamboyant in his promotional efforts to get people to come. And he really thought, you need to make this. You're starting a new league. You're not the NFL. You need to give people a reason to come. And one of those reasons would be great promotions. So it was come see the Bandits at Tampa Stadium, and one fan is going to win a million dollars. So it's it's a sellout crowd, and they announce the winner is the person with the ticket in seat, you know, section 220, seat 14C. And they bring the guy on the field, and everyone goes crazy. And they hand him a check, one of those big cardboard checks for a million dollars. And what they don't say is, it's so great. You get fifty thousand dollars a year starting in twenty years. So you do get a million dollars, but fifty thousand dollars a year in fifty thousand dollar year increments, beginning in the year two thousand and four. So somewhere out there right now, that guy is still presumably getting paid because they did it. Um, you know, they used a bank. They did it through a bank. Where they used to banks used to grant the sports teams these sort of annuity deals where uh, you put X amount down and the interest would build and, and then it would be paid off over the years. It's really awesome. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm going to go ahead and pass it on to Catherine. He'll pass it on to Tim for more questions, and I may have uh, one or two follow-ups at the end. Catherine? Okay. Yeah, I, I have to admit that I'm not a big sports person. Uh, even That's though okay. I did grow up in a big football town in Ann Arbor, Michigan, oh, nice. I'm not a big football. I'm not a big uh, – sports person so I but I do want to ask you about um the player I can't remember his name now who Trump wanted to hire but he wanted everybody else to pay yeah uh yeah what 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 was that like what was I didn't I, I just heard you know briefly about that like what was the what was his argument for that like why oh yeah would, so it, it, it's pretty outstanding. So um, basically, so there was a team called the New Jersey Generals, and Donald Trump bought the team after one season. So he bought them at the end of 1983, 
And he had the USFL lasted three years, so um, he had the team for the last two years. And he didn't know much about football, but he was, you know, say what you want about Trump, good or bad, he, he's a you know, magical marketer and promoter. And at the time, the biggest star in college football was a guy named Doug Flutie, who was the, co- the quarterback at Boston College. And he was very undersized. He was about 5'9", quarterback, really good arm. Um, and Donald Trump decided he needed Doug Flutie. The team needed Doug Flutie. We need Doug Flutie, even though they had a really good quarterback. So he, um, he convinces – he basically decides we're going to get Doug Flutie. And the generals end up paying Doug Flutie the biggest contract in pro football history at the time. It was a, uh, it was a six-year, $8.3 million deal, and this was 1985, so it was a lot of money. And, um, yeah. yeah, and they, they, they sign him, and it's kind of crazy because it's ridiculous money for a player who's not that good. Um, and Trump tells his colleagues with the generals, don't worry, um, we're going we're gonna to sign him, but the other teams are going to pay for, pay for his contract. <laughs> kind of like Mexico playing for oh my God. the wall. My thing throughout promoting this book has been that Doug Flutie literally was the wall before the wall was the wall, and the other owners were Mexico. So he um, he wrote a letter that I have to the uh, to the commissioner of the U.S. of L. Trump did, saying by signing Doug Flutie, I am doing the U.S. of L. a huge favor, and this will be beneficial for the entire league. You can already see the dividends, blah 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 blah, and I expect all the other owners to contribute to Doug Flutie's uh, contract. Um, well, well, much like Mexico, the uh, the other owners were not having it, and nobody paid a dime except for Donald Trump of Doug Flutie's contract. But he had guaranteed people, "Don't worry, I'm going to sign him." The other owners are going to pay, and the other owners are like, "Yeah, we are not paying for this guy's." Um, and it was all the funny thing is, the the league, a big part of the USFL's problems was overspending on players, and Donald Trump was sort of a leader in overspending on players, and and that contract for Doug Flutie was a perfect example. Hilarious. Yeah, it's pretty good. I, I did I did find the the portions of your book that I read were very like illust they they illustrated very well what a you know we could have learned a lot if we if everybody had read that book in 2015 yeah. uh, and before everybody voted for him but that's you know it's a, it, um, it, it, it it's a weird thing. It was a really weird process because um, I'm working on this book during the election. So right around the time Trump was talking about Mexico paying for the wall, I am writing about Doug Flutie. So I'm, <laughs> so I'm learning about this whole thing as it's going on. I'm thinking – I mean, there are a lot of like uh, – the parallels are pretty intense. Like um, Donald Trump, the only reason he really bought a USFL team – was because he won an NFL franchise. And he thought he had tried buying the Baltimore Colts in the NFL. He got rejected. He later tried buying the New England Patriots, got rejected. He tried buying uh, the Buffalo Bills and got rejected. He saw the USFL as a way to get an NFL team, which was, I'll join the spring league, and eventually the NFL will feel so threatened they'll absorb our league. And one day, while he was the owner of the New Jersey Generals, he, uh, he arranged a meeting with the commissioner of the NFL, Pete Rozelle, and he said to Roselle, they met at the Pierre Hotel in a suite that Trump paid for in Manhattan. And he said to Roselle, um, I don't really care about this USFL. You tell me what I have to do to get in the NFL, and I'll do it. If you need me to help throw this league under the bus, I don't care. I want an NFL franchise, not a USFL franchise. So, you know, here we are, modern times, and people are saying he colluded with Russia. He didn't collude with Russia. 
And I'm just saying, like, he literally went against the best interests of the league he was in to get in a different league. So when people say he wouldn't, I'm not saying he did or didn't, but when people say he would never do something like that, I sort of feel like, well, he, he kind of already did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to pass it to Tim. Thanks very much. It's good of to have course. you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good evening, Mr. Perlman. Uh, now, I must admit the very opposite. I am like this massive sports fan. I remember distinctly watching Michigan win the first championship. Anthony Carter running all over the field. Oh, I love it. Catching love passes. It. I believe he was the MVP that night. Um but but what I was, you know, they had some good football players. The USFL had rich owners. They competed on a level playing field, I believe, for the talent. And they got their share of it. You know, people like Jim Kelly and on and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they were on television. They were not competing head-to-head with the NFL. They were a spring league, and they were growing. Did Donald Trump's push to get them to go head-to-head against the NFL in the fall, is that what caused that league to fold? I mean, it certainly didn't help it. I mean, there were a lot of – you know what the thing is that's really interesting? It's like – it's like Trump, Trump was a very destructive force, and he wanted, he wanted an NFL franchise, and his goal was to get an NFL franchise. Uh, and one thing he does really well, and we've seen it time and time again throughout his history, and this is kind of whether you like him or not, like he is really, really masterful at coercing people, at pushing people, at suggesting, at urging. Um, and you had all these guys in the USFL – and they knew starting a football league was, a, was going to be a money loser at first. So you have to take time. They have to spend money to lose money. Uh, you have to uh, lose money to make money. And he convinced them very early on, look, we need to move to fall. Fall is the only way we can make money. I've talked with the TV executives all over. I've talked to so many TV executives. They all think we should be in the fall. Now, no TV executives ever told him they should be in the fall. But he was very big. And you know how he does it now with the um, – I know lots of people who – and a lot of people are saying that, like, he was really good at that. The other thing he did back then, um, it came out during the, the campaign a little bit. He created a fake publicist named John Barron. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. He, and this is when it started with the USFL. He would disguise his voice. This is kind of amazing. He would disguise his voice, call a newspaper reporter, say, hey, Jim, um, this, doesn't, this is just between you and me, but Mr. Trump is really interested in doing X. And the reporter would say, wow, that's really interesting. Can I use you as a source? Uh, yeah, keep it anonymous. Would you want to speak to Mr. Trump? Well, that'd be great. I would love to speak to Mr. Trump. Okay, let me see if I can get him to call you back. 20 minutes later, hey, uh, Jim, uh, John Barron said I should give you a call. This is Donald Trump. Well, then <laughs> you have someone on background telling you that it happened, and then you have the source, Donald Trump. So you have two people telling you that something is certain. So he, would, he was a master mani- – I actually find it funny when he says fake news – because this is what he did. He actually created a fake publicist to plant stories in the newspaper. So it's very funny that he now uses the hashtag fake news when nobody has ever been better at literally creating fake news than Donald Trump. And that was a big part of the U.S. of downfall is him coercing, 
uh, swaying, pushing, bullying other owners against their best interests because you convince them all that they should move to the fall and take on the NFL. Now, now one of these fake narratives that that uh, Donald Trump would put out and, and has over the years is that either he was promised by the commissioner that he could buy um, an NFL mm-hmm. franchise or he was just going to outright buy one, say, say the Buffalo Bills. So did the way that Trump acted during that time, and especially as owner of the New Jersey Generals, did it produce the resistance from other NFL owners when he actually wanted to buy a franchise? Well, it's interesting because um, when he met with Pete Rozelle, the commissioner, and tried getting an NFL franchise, Rozelle, who, who is also New York-based and knew of Trump's reputation, uh, mm-hmm. said to him, as long as I'm uh, affiliated with this league, as long as my heirs are affiliated with this league, you will have nothing to do with the NFL. Um, because he viewed Trump as kind of a con man and sleazy and sort of gross. And I always say it this way, like um, if you end up dating someone who cheated on their last boyfriend – <laughs> it would be weird to trust that person. So mm-hmm. Trump comes along and is willing to throw the USFL under the bus. Why, if you're the NFL, would you want this guy in your league? Um, the other thing that's really interesting is during the trial, because the NFL, the USFL wound up suing the NFL. Um, and they, had, they went in that Manhattan District Court, big lawsuit. And Donald Trump, under oath, and I'm amazed more people haven't made something out of this, lied and said that Pete Rozelle and the NFL promised him a franchise, which is utterly insane. Um, you can't find anyone in the NFL who will verify that, anyone in the U.S. about who will verify it. Nobody believes it. Everyone knows it's a lie. And he said under oath that the NFL um, offered him a franchise, and it's just complete and total garbage. The NFL had no interest in Donald Trump. Also, you got to remember back then, the NFL was a league of old money. It was the Roonies mm-hmm. and the Maras. It was old family money. They were not looking for people like a Don- – you know, Donald Trump was basically Jerry Jones five years before Jerry Jones came along. And the NFL wasn't ready for a Jerry Jones at that point. Hmm. Uh, so, obviously, this would have left uh, – one, one more question. I'm going to throw it back to David. But, obviously, this would have left a bad taste in Donald Trump's mouth mm-hmm. that, that he was shut out, basically. Sure. Yep. Um, do you – is it possible that this experience with the NFL, did it, did it become – part of what made him react as he did to, uh, you know, Colin Kaepernick and, and the players that, that kneeled, you know? Oh, I have, um, I have little doubt about that. Um, I actually think it's really funny because uh, when Donald Trump was the owner in the, of, of the New Jersey Generals and they would play the national anthem, um, there were times where he'd be on the phone, he'd be in the press box, he wouldn't be standing, he'd be conducting business. And I always say, like, I have no problem with that. Like, I've, you just have your moments in life. I've been in press boxes where the anthem's playing, and I'm in the middle of an interview, and I kind of rush to the back, and I don't stand for the anthem. You know, we, we all have our moments. But, you know, him calling out Colin Kaepernick for a lack of patriotism was, prepo- mm-hmm. I mean, preposterous, absolutely preposterous uh, when he was doing the exact same thing. Um, he's felt scorned by the NFL for years. He wanted – he wanted in that club. You know, if you, if you think about it, especially back then, but even now, there are very few, more, there are very, very few clubs that are more exclusive than NFL ownership. When you mm-hmm. think about the prestige, the celebrity, the money, the breaks you get from your, whatever your local cities you're in. I mean, I'm here in L.A., and there, 
They're basically building the Rams and Chargers a stadium. I mean, it's yeah, an amazing person. Where, uh, where are you based? Atlanta. Atlanta. Yeah, right. It's, all, it's a crazy club. It's where you can, you're wealthy and you only get wealthier. Uh, and you're considered a celebrity and everyone calls you Mr. And they wait for your 10 minutes to get you an interview. Like, it's an amazing club. So he wanted in that. And the rejection he's gotten repeatedly from the USFL, uh, from the NFL, sort of cuts right to that thing that he hates, which is feeling sort of like an imposter or feeling like a phony. It seems I've always felt that's his kryptonite. He hates that. And with that, I'm going to throw it back to David. David? Yes. uh, Well, Jeff, another question sort of related to Donald Trump, but just about the league in general. You know, have they been able to force some kind of merger? And I I think there was talks about it. You may mention it. I kind of remember I was about your age um, Mm -hmm. at the time and did watch the NFL. I mean, USFL like Tim did. And I know that, like, when the NBA – they absorbed the ABA. They took in four teams. When they took in the AAFL, the NFL did, they took in the Browns, Colts, 49ers. Now, of course, the mm-hmm. AFL, they took the whole thing in. Um, but if they would have taken USFL teams in, um, was there really a plan to take in just a few teams? And if Donald Trump and I'm going to be one of those teams, how in the world would the New York market have supported three teams or would they have forced the generals to move to a non-NFL market? So that's a great question. Um, the funny thing is Trump was, Trump was onto something. Like, the idea itself was not a bad idea. Like, so in 1987, there was a huge NFL player strike where they wound up using replacement, using replacement players. Um, a lot of people I interviewed for the book from the U.S. of L side sort of felt like if the, if the U.S. of L had held on until that moment um, and they started taking players en masse from the NFL, it would have been sort of Armageddon football. And that's a point where the, US, where the NFL looks at the USFL and says, well, team in Jacksonville, we don't have a team in Jacksonville. That'd be really good. We don't have a team in Baltimore. That would yeah. be really good. We don't have a team in Oakland anymore. That would be really good. Team in Tennessee, we don't have a team in Tennessee. Like, there are four or five markets that would have been perfect for the NFL. Um, and I know there are definitely talks to taking the Baltimore. So the Baltimore Stars, formerly the Philadelphia Stars, were, were the best team in the USFL. And they, they won two of the three championships. They were an NFL-caliber team, and um, there was definitely an interest there. Now, the interesting thing about Trump and the NFL, and I am a New York, I live in California, but I am a New Yorker. Um, the Jets had just moved from Shea Stadium to the Meadowlands to share New Jersey with the Giants. Trump's idea, a downtown Manhattan stadium, uh, actually not downtown, he was going to put it by the water, uh, stadium, a third sort of metro team, I think could work. I mean, the population of that area is enormous. Uh, New York sports fans felt kind of abandoned by the Jets moving to New Jersey, you know, a couple of decades after the Giants moved to New Jersey. I think his idea could have worked, but he just there was no patience, no forethought, nothing about it, just a, a rush to a lawsuit. Yeah, no patience, a, a character trait. Um, well, Jeff, my next one's gonna. My next question is gonna start with a story, and and I apologize. I'm probably gonna make you and your son jealous. Um, my grandmother, Lucy Bailey, was the assistant ticket director of the Falcons throughout the '70s, '80s, into the '90s. And when I was okay. a kid growing up in the late '70s into the '80s, I got to go eat Thanksgiving dinner with all the Falcon players, the Falcon staff. I mean, you go up to the a big training facility. They cook an incredible meal, and you, um, you know, I would sit with my my grandmother, and my uncle, and different stuff. But you could go around and talk to the players and meet ones. 
And I'm sure throughout all those years that I got to have Thanksgiving dinner with Greg Fields. Um, You seem to be the biggest Greg Fields fan I've ever heard of. When I heard the name, I recognized it, but I will be remiss that I was more of an Alfred Jackson man myself from the Falcons. But uh, why were you so? What was the affinity towards um, Greg Fields? Now, I just want to say first of all, I didn't think this story was going in that direction because my son and I. My son is a huge – this is weird because he's only 12. He's a big Lynn Kane fan. Do you remember wow. Lynn Kane? The oh, Falcons yes, back? I remember Lynn Kane. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I thought you were going there. Uh, Greg Fields – I mean, because Greg Fields is the greatest story in the history of football. He, um, he, he was a defensive lineman out of Grambling. He played for the Baltimore Colts in 1979 as a rookie. His nickname was Big Paper because he used to um, – he would call the teammates who were making a lot of money the Big Paper Boys – he was like, hey, Big Paper Boy. And, you know, because Big Paper, meaning they were making money. And they started calling him Big Paper as a joke because he was the lowest paid member of the Colts. A year later, he's in camp with the Atlanta Falcons. He never makes the team, but he's in training camp with the Falcons. And um, they decide to cut him, and he refuses to leave. So they have to come with an armed officer to get him out. And uh, they literally knock on the door of his whatever dorm room, and they say, uh, Greg, you need to leave. F you, I'm not leaving. Uh, we have a guy with a gun, Greg all right, maybe I'll leave. And he leaves. And um, he ends up in the USFL, and he plays for the LA Express, and the LA Express head coach is John Hadle, the former quarterback. And Hadle decides to cut Fields. And in the middle of cutting him, Greg Fields punches him in the face. And, uh, <laughs> you know, F you, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you. And then he starts showing up. This is a crazy part. He starts showing up at practices, standing behind the fence and just staring at John Hadle. And... Um, he starts calling in death threats to the team, and he has a gun in his trunk. So the Express hired this guy, Nelson Mercado, who is uh, Liberace's bodyguard. So they hired him away from Liberace just to keep track of Greg Fields and trail him around. And, um, you know, Greg Fields is showing up. He's making calls. He's got the gun. Uh, the guy that I interviewed, the bodyguard, he's, you know, kind of terrified that Greg Fields is going to sort of kill someone. And everyone knows about it in the U.S. If everyone is warned about Greg Fields. And the beauty of the league is that um, – the San Antonio gunslingers need some defensive line help. So they actually signed Greg Fields, even knowing he threatened to kill his head coach. And um, he spent a year in San Antonio, and toward the end of his last year, the gunslingers, the San Antonio gunslingers owner, stopped paying players. So one day Greg Fields grabbed a baseball bat and followed the owner home in his car. And the owner got out of his car, and Greg Fields got out of his car. And he said, I see where you live. I know you have money. You better pay me. And the owner walks into his house. He says, wait here. And he comes back out with 10000 in cash. And he says, is this good? And Greg's like, yeah, we're good. And the owner's like, am I going to see you again? He's like, no. And he drives back home to San Francisco. Now, fast forward to two years ago, and I decide I need to find Greg Fields, but all I have is an address. I don't have a phone number. So I, I take my son with me on a road trip. I mean, it makes me like worst father in the history of mankind. Like, find the homicidal maniac football player with your 12-year-old, 9-year-old kid at the time. And... um we ended up, we ended up, uh, I ended up at Greg Fields' house. Actually, I ended up at Greg Fields' sister house, and she gave me, his, she gave his number to me, uh, she gave my number to him, and he called me. And a day later, me, my son, and Greg Fields are eating Cold Stone Creamery at a shopping mall in Sacramento, California. It's one of the greatest moments of my journalistic life. Wow. Yeah. He was a nice guy. Yeah, kind of I think he was a nice guy. I think if I were Lehman Bennett or John Hadle, instead of cutting him, I would have said we've been traded. Uh, you know, if I was yeah. Lehman Bennett, I'd say we've made a deal with the 
uh, championship wrestling of Georgia. Oh, we're going to send you down to Turner Studios. You'll be the greatest yeah, show exactly. ever. Um, exactly. You can write your own script because obviously you've got it down. Um, exactly. Well, Jim, I love those Falcons, by the go. way. I just want to say I love those Falcons. Yeah. I, I remember being a kid and the Gerald Riggs, William Andrews, Lynn Kane, they always had great running backs on those teams. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. did. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I will talk with my friends now how we need the big running back. Um, oh, know, yeah. Not the little guy, the big running back, because I guess I was raised on the even Bubba Bean before them, the, the big oh, yeah, you know, six-foot-plus or 220-plus type back. Well, um, before we let you go, though, if you're right, if you started on a new book you can tell people about or you're writing articles where people can read you, kind of share that mm-hmm. with our listeners. Yo, I just started researching and writing a book about the uh, – I'm doing a book about the Lakers of the Shaq Kobe era, so basically 96 to 04. Um, and I have a website, jeffperlman.com, and I have a podcast about writing called uh, Two Writers Slinging Yang that's available on uh, everywhere, iTunes, Spotify, all those areas. All right. Well, yep. uh, Jeff, this has been quite delightful. I, I would, If we can find a reason to have you back where we can kind of get a political angle to a sports book, I, I'm going to do it. Maybe Brett Favre will run for office or something. I don't oh, know. Oh, man, I'm a political junkie, and I just want to say – I was looking at the guests on your that you guys have had uh, through the past whatever year, and I love that sort of diversity. Uh, it's so refreshing to see you guys have people from the right, people from the left, people of different viewpoints, as opposed to just feeding people the same, letting people just – I long for a day when we don't just hear what we want to hear, and we actually hear different viewpoints, I, and I think you guys do a really nice job of that, so bravo to you. Well, thank, well, you. thank you, and we're glad to add you to that list. Thank you, sir. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, thank you. All right. That was Jeff Perlman, his latest book, Football for a Buck. Uh, He had a Walter Payton book also he didn't mention, but um, I actually started listening to it. I had too many books checked out and have to go back and finish it. I wanted to finish it anyway, and now I've got to finish it even more. So um, I was just fascinated by his past book and this conversation with Jeff. Um, Guys, we've got a little more time. Let's bring it back to Georgia real quick. this past week, the new – I don't want to get his office wrong, but he's related to F, uh, election ethics. He has subpoenaed all the records or records from the Stacey Abrams campaign. Um, this looks just a little bit cynical, doesn't it, Catherine? Yeah, has he actually subpoenaed them, or has he said he's going to subpoena them? Or, or requested them. Yeah, I mean, you them. can tell it's – yeah, he, he's, it's, he's it's made overtures that he wants the records. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's just the usual, you know, Stacey Abrams is getting a lot of attention, so they want to, you know, I'm sure that some national political people called up Governor Kemp and said, can't you do something about that? And uh, so they decided to call the ethics, ethics department and have them, or ethics division, and have them subpoena the records. It's it's not surprising. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's definitely a Kemp style attack. Yeah, it definitely is a, just not a good look. I mean, when you won, it's kind of to me, it's on you to try to um, bring people together. If you're the winner, no matter how you got there, and of course we probably have our own strong thoughts about how they got there, but uh, to me it's its own. Uh, the Republican Party and Brian Kemp 
to try to set things right. But, Tim, this kind of move doesn't seem like they're interested in doing that. No, it, it certainly looks like a partisan attack. I mean, he's going after Abrams, and just so happens they're also talking about going after the Atlanta mayoral candidates. What do they all have in common? They're all Democrats. Um, you know, this guy gave money to Kemp. He was yeah. the former chair of the Douglas County Republican Party. He's as partisan as they come, and he's supposed to be heading up a, a, a nonpartisan group. I mean, give me a break. Of course they're they're doing this for partisan reasons, and uh, ever, everybody knows it. So, um, by the way, our guest got away before I could talk to him about General uh, Bob Lee. So, uh, so, do you remember him, David? I, I remember the pictures and whatnot, but he's a bit before my time. Yeah, um, I guess he was, because yes, you would have been a wee, a wee tot when he was uh, being a hero for the Falcons on Monday Night Football. But anyway, yeah, this this ethics thing is is uh, well, it is it, it, absolutely sickening, um, and I'm afraid. Uh, According to the looks of this AJC poll, um, it may be having some effect, these attacks on Stacey Abrams. I notice her numbers are down a little bit. Did y'all notice that? Yeah, we were going to talk about that, but that interview was just too good to try to try, try to move through. Um, but that poll came out, and, and she actually has a lower favorability rating than David Perdue. Higher than Donald Trump, but lower than David Perdue. Um, I, yeah, I don't. But, do you think? Her, I, I would think it's more maybe the indecision on her U.S. Senate decision that's part of this. Not these, you know, if anybody requesting records. Yeah, I, I don't really I, think that anybody thinks that she's unethical. I mean, of all the things that could be said about Stacey Abrams, I don't think anybody could claim a, a lack of ethics. Do you, Catherine? No. Um, preposterous. Yeah. Yeah. Tim, what do you I, think's driving numbers? I, 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 I think it's, it's a combination of things, and, and, and it's a lot. I noticed that her approval rating specifically is taking a hit with male voters, and they're driving this narrative, especially on social media and, and on television shows, too, where they're saying, look at her. She wouldn't even concede the race. How can you listen to anything she says? And this, there's just this drumbeat of that because they all of a sudden recognize her as someone who could threaten them in a U.S. Senate race or who could actually be uh, a running mate to the Democratic nominee for president. So they've started attacking her. And I think yeah. uh, I, I, I think just the combination of all these attacks together, not just the ethics thing. I think it's just one more of these attacks. And I and I think it, I think it's hurt her approvals a little. Now she said it's at 45 approval and 45 disapprove. And as you mentioned, lower than, than Purdue, uh, lower, lower than Kemp now. So. Yeah, um, 47, not a great number, but not maybe as low as one would think. But, Catherine, I get the idea that a lot of Georgia voters don't know how closely he's tied to Donald Trump. Do you? Uh, 
No, no, uh, Purdue. Because if you could, yeah, I, I'm, think, I'm thinking that you could tie the two together and move that number down. <clears throat> oh yeah, I think so. <clears throat> I think I don't think people realize how how close he is and how much he supports the Trump agenda. He tra- you know, David. He's kind of a um, keeps himself. You know, he's not that uh, there. You know, we don't hear from him that much. You, you know, David, you're on to something there. Trump's approval in that same poll is only 40% with a 56% disapproval. While everybody else's numbers are moving up a little bit, maybe down, his are just sitting there flat. Uh, if you're a, one of these statewide politicians in Georgia right now, you wouldn't want your name out there with Trump, would you? Right. No, I don't think he would. And I think it also says something about our political environment. Um, everybody's going to be controversial whether you want to or not. Like, for instance, I don't think Barack Obama wanted to be controversial in one single bit. But he was made controversial by our political divide. So the best way to keep your numbers up may not be to try to, you know, to bridge the divide and, and, and you know, be out in the spotlight being the good uh, citizen, the being the good public servant. It may be laying low because you're going to get whatever your base is. Like let's say the Republican base vote is 40, 43%. And then if you lay low and people said, oh, you got elected last time, then you get five more points uh, just for, for doing that. Whereas if you're controversial like Donald Trump is and out there in the public eye, it brings you down to 40, just like you could probably name some other officials. And maybe because Stacey Abrams is more in the news, that's why she's two points lower than David Perdue. So it would behoove you to not make news, which is totally counterintuitive to almost everything we know about public life. What do you think, Catherine? I think you've got, a, uh, you've got an idea there. And it, what it also says is that if you're running against one of those people, you need to – uh, highlight their connection to Donald Trump. Yeah, and, and the Republicans will probably try to pick a controversial figure. I, I, I think they've worn Nancy Pelosi out. I just don't think that dog will hunt anymore. But they'll try no. to find somebody and, and tie and tie Democrats to that person, um, whomever it is. Well, guys, we're just a little bit over, um, but but great show tonight. Very different and interesting guests and some other good talk. And next week. We'll be back when our guest is scheduled to be Matthew Dowd. Until then, it's Cudsy Vine. Yay. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment the American people and their essential love of justice.